welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am your co-host, Scott Parkin, in sunny Berkeley, California today. And as always, I'm joined by... Uh, Bob Bazanko in Texas. And happy Sunday morning. And uh, today we are going to be talking... We're going to be talking about a couple of things, but we're going to be talking about uh, this idea of a no-fly zone. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the media uh, around and, and with politicians and generals and things like that talking about whether the U.S. or NATO should establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine to give some relief to civilian populations which are under, you know, attack by the, the Russian military, the Russian Air Force, what have you. Uh, there's actually a poll that came out uh, late this week from Reuters that said that 74% of Americans support a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, with large majorities from both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and so we disagree with this. We decided that we would actually do a little bit of a backgrounder on no-fly zones. And then we're also going to actually just talk about this like, notion of different other different weapons that are being used against Russia, things like sanctions and not buying oil and things like that. And we're going to talk about the, we're going to just talk about escalation just in general as well. I have to say, I thought we were going to start an official uniform, so I wore green and red today. So, um, and fortunately, I, I always I wore my black as always, <laughs> my black black attire. Fortunately, this is a topic where um, saner voices seem to be prevailing. But uh, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of people talking about no fly zones, and you know, uh, uh, mostly people on the kind of well, seventy four percent of Americans politically. Um, it's funny, of all people, Ted Cruz shot the idea down the other day. But to get to the point, I think most people don't even, I'm not sure they really know what exactly a no-fly zone is. It's a very simple concept. And it's actually fairly new. Um, you really started to see them, the origins kind of come out of the uh, first Gulf War. Uh, after the war ended, remember, the United States did not go in and depose Saddam Hussein. They stopped, you know, in southern Iraq. So what they did was establish a no-fly zone. Doing that means you create... Uh, an area over another country. This has nothing to do with your own airspace, which is, you know, uh, determined by international law. So you, you, you create an area in another country and you say that no hostile aircraft, no aircraft really without your permission, uh, but it, it obviously pertains to military aircraft are allowed to, to be in that zone. So the point was the United States created this no-fly zone and essentially directed it at the government of Iraq. So it was it was a no-fly zone in a country you know, against its own sovereign uh, air rights. Uh, and they did that, they said, to protect Kurds and other minorities, uh, and Shia Muslim in the South. Um, so Iraq- and it, was after, air, after, and it was after George H.W. Bush had actually encouraged the people of Iraq, namely the Shia in the South and the Kurds in the North to rise up against Saddam. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's, it's really established, like I think late, late, maybe even in 1992 or late 1991. And so essentially the United States was telling the Iraqi Air Force it was not allowed to fly in its own airspace. 
And it was enforced all the way up to the invasion of 2003. Uh, and the Iraqis claimed that 1,400 people were killed uh, during the bombing, during bombings in the no-fly zone by the United States. Remember, Bill Clinton uh, more than once, uh, you know, had uh, various campaigns, air campaigns. One was precisely at the time, I believe, of the Lewinsky uh, scandal. So um, it was not authorized by the United Nations uh, at the time, uh, or yeah, at the time, uh, Buchos Buchos Galli, who was the uh, Secretary General at the time, said that fly zones, no fly zones were illegal. So there's really no standing in international law. They're kind of a creation uh, of uh, the Americans, you know, in that era, kind of done on the fly. It's a, it's a show of power. It doesn't it doesn't have any basis in in long term international law. You know, you immediately saw it invoked again in in Kosovo with Operation Deny Flight. Well, and and also in Bosnia Herzegovina. Yeah, enforced by NATO in the early nineties, early to mid nineties, ninety five, ninety three to ninety five. Yeah, and that time they did go to the UN uh, to get an authorization for it. And um, it was called Operation Deny Flight for obvious reasons. And uh, I think it included countries other than the US where they flew from air bases outside. It was a kind of a NATO operation uh, more than that. And uh, um, I did have the data here and I can't find it on how many planes were shot down and how many people were killed, but it was it was it was effective, obviously. But you know, keep in mind too that the two countries this is directed against were, were badly weakened by war, so um, it uh, you know it was effective. But again, in the case of Bosnia Herzegovina, it was uh, sanctioned by the UN, not in the case of Iraq. But it's it's uh, it's kind of like an occupation of the skies, which has uh, you know serious uh, repercussions in international law. And, and the, I think to note about Operation Deny Flight is that there was a, a sort of a, a sort of highlight moment or like a big media moment was that Captain Scott O'Grady, who I think later become, became like a big spokesperson for the right, uh, actually got shot down by the Serbs, spent six days in survival mode until he was able to be rescued. And his, his shooting down was actually a, a part of them trying to enforce a no-fly zone over Bosnia. And so yes. just to, for folks who may remember that episode. And I mean, I think that's the important point here because people tend to be cavalier about it. Oh, of course, you know, don't let them fly. You know, And there's the idea behind this obviously would be that NATO in this particular case right now, NATO would create a no-fly zone so that the Russians would not be allowed to uh, fly, you know, would not, you know, would, would, well, wouldn't be allowed. They, they would be subject to NATO counterattack if they entered Ukraine airspace and I think people who are cavalier about it don't realize that you're going to have a lot of Scott O'Grady's if that happens. And that's the real issue here. At, you know, in a minute, we'll get to the, the, the saner heads prevailing on this issue. But yeah, I mean, this is really a hostile act. It's an aggressive act and it will be met with countermeasures. And, um, you know, the, the Russians have uh, their own aircraft and their own missiles. So it's, it's not like you can just, you know, create a cordon and say no one's going to come in here and everything is, is done. You know, that's that's not going to happen. This is in Iraq in 1992, which is just, you know, was just devastated by a war. I mean, there, there have been pretty much every time there's some kind of conflict. Now, the issue of a no-fly zone comes up. I think, you know, the one that I remember the, the most, more re most recently, has been in Syria. And I talk about that mostly because it's a, a great example of NATO liberals. This is one of Hillary Clinton's. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton was hawkish in so many ways. And remember, in the 2016 campaign, Trump ran 
attacking her for for her hawkishness. And I think Syria, he really, uh, really kind of bashed her pretty good on that one. Um, she wanted to establish a no-fly zone uh, in Syria, remember, because Syria at the time, the government was attacking people. The Russians were, were, uh, were attacking, were, you know, were attacking through the air. The U.S. had flights coming out of there. Hillary Clinton wanted to establish a, a no-fly zone against Syrian and then also Russian air power. And again, this also points to the U.S.-Russian hostilities. They're not new and they're not confined to Ukraine or to Georgia or even to that region. In Syria, most people who were dying weren't being killed from air attack anyway. And so Clinton's kind of idea that she could protect civilian populations was misguided from the first. And as soon as she announced that no-fly zones, I think, uh, you know, most analysts and retired military people who were on CNN and, you know, pretty much anybody said this, this is a bad idea. But my favorite, which, which I will let you deliver, was uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, evaluation of that. Yeah, he, he basically said that Clinton was just nutty for wanting to impose a, a, a no-fly zone over, over Syria. He said that that would get us no World War III with the Russians. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, to say you don't want to go to World War III against the Russians makes you a Russian dupe, I guess. But in this particular case, and I'm not going to defend Donald Trump, you know, I think you all know how we all feel about him. Clinton, yeah, luckily was rebuked. And, but, but that remains in the arsenal. It it's really sounds good from a media perspective, right? And I think the fact that 74% of Americans support this also talks to the kind of idea of propaganda that we mentioned the other day. You know, when this began, um, most Americans, I think it was only like 26%, said, yeah, we have a vested interest here. We have to do something about it. And now those numbers are through the roof. And Biden, if the mayor's poll is legit, you know, got like an eight-point bounce off the State of the Union address when he went on kind of full Cold War mode. Biden is now channeling Reagan, I guess. You know, who knows? He's somebody different every week, right? Or maybe JFK. Or maybe JFK. Yeah, 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 yeah. Speaking of which, check out the Green and Red Medium page. I have an article up about Kennedy and Oliver Stone. You know, I'm like a Rottweiler. I won't let it go. So, um, yeah, I, I, amid this uh, international crisis, people kind of tend to rally. And I mean, Putin is, is really a, a good foil because he is like a reprehensible kind of, you know, despicable, horrible person who has committed a, a, an act of aggression. But um, at least in this particular case, people in D.C. who seem to be, you know, no better, luckily, have kind of, you know, smacked this idea down, including, including Biden. But most recently, I just in the last couple of days, Blinken, uh, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, and then today, you just a minute ago, sent me an article about uh, an op-ed written by Mark Milley. Yeah, who I it, think, was just, uh, it was yesterday. Was it yesterday? It was from yesterday. I missed it. Yeah. And Milley, although the right hates him because he apparently was part of the deep state against Trump, but really does have, a, you know, significant credibility, I think, in, in those circles. So. And then it, it's, you know, worth noting, you had mentioned Cruz, but also Marco Rubio and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley have both basically come out and said that a no-fly zone would essentially start World War Three. Yeah, you know, that's funny. They keep talking about World War. And I mean, that's that's a common refrain and it's a nice trope to use. But, you know, World War II, Hitler was trying to take over first all of Central Europe and then all of the world. And then, you know, the Japanese were trying to take all, all over East Asia. I mean, right now, there's only two states in that region which which are not aligned. And that's Belarus and, U, and U, well, Ukraine actually is, but it's Belarus, really. So you really can't start a world war against one country. So I think people need to tap the brakes and not, you know, take, take a Xanax or have a glass of wine or something like that. 
I mean, you can certainly see a hot yoga. Go do some hot yoga. Do some hot yoga and have a mark. Well, what did uh, Jen Saka say? A hot yoga and a margarita. And a margarita. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. But you, 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 I mean, Ukraine is in the crosshairs, absolutely. And I'm horrified at what I've already seen, you know, the images of what I already seen, what, what could happen there. But what's the war going to expand to? I mean, you know, Russia's going to attack Western Europe. I mean, it's it's limited just just by the, the fact, you know, geopolitically, geopolitical fact, <clears throat> you know, it's not really going to expand. Russia doesn't have allies. Bolsonaro, I think, has been kind of supportive you know but uh um it's it's not spreading beyond ukraine right uh, the the russians aren't going to throw icbms at the united states or anything like that so i i mean you know i, I mean i think you know, all the support we can muster for the people of ukraine and the people of russia i mean I, you know you can't leave that out is important but um also you know i think we do need to kind of have a, a be a little bit more sober about about this because it's not it's not World War Three. It's not World War Three. World Wars. I mean, the whole world is at war right now. It's Russia, you know, with uh, maybe Belarus and some Chechen, you know, maniacs. But it's it's yeah, not yeah. it's not a threat to the interests of the United States. No. Uh, and in fact, you know, that's yeah, funny today. I mean, we talk about global interest and economic interest. I mean, you know, the United States is still not not just the U.S. Russia is still getting $700 million a day in oil sales. So again, you know, the gravity of the situation is, is, is real and it's legitimate, but you know, you don't have world wars with countries. I mean, even, you know, in the United States finally cut off oil sales to Japan and in, uh, in the fall of uh, 1941. So at some point, you know, it gets more serious and we're not at that point yet, you know, just on this topic of, of, of escalation. So, no, no-fly zone is a potential escalation zone. But then Putin also has come out and said that you know he he considers the economic sanctions against his country an act of war. He's uh, they've essentially passed a law in Russia that anyone who goes against the the, the Russian state narrative is a you know spreading fake news and get 15 years in jail, which has led to like CNN and Canadian broadcasting companies and other media outlets to withdraw from Russia. Also. You know, 80% of Americans said that the, the U.S. should stop buying Russian oil. And, you know, we're hoping we kind of have in the works to do a, an episode on like fossil fuels and, and, the, and the struggle in the Ukraine. But I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on this, this idea of this escalation from these, you know, non-military, non-military, I guess you would call it aggression against Russia. Yeah, I mean, say, yeah, I mean, as we know, we, we, we've talked about that. We've done shows on Iran and Cuba, who are, along with Venezuela, the targets of the biggest sanctions the U.S. has ever imposed. And they, they do immense damage to the, the working people of those societies, but they don't change states. Even you know, if you look at South Africa, which was kind of a more complex situation, and in general, you know, you know the, the sanctions, there are people on the left are opposed to sanctions, although not in South Africa. And, and, again, and again, I think most of us are supportive of the BDS movement. But the reality is sanctions generally work against people in less developed countries and poor countries since their target. And that's clearly the case in Russia. I mean, the Russian banking system has basically been shut down. Russians can't get to their uh, their money. Uh, the ruble has basically collapsed. Uh, there are, you know, I read a, a little vignette the other day, Russian students in the US can't get to their money, right? Um, so clearly it's, it's an aggressive act. And I mean, you always hear that rhetoric, this is an act of war, but I mean, politicians say that about a lot of different things, uh, you know, in terms of, of affecting Russia's ability to, to fight, to, to 
cause destruction in Ukraine, it's probably not going to stop them. You know, I mean, clearly, uh, Putin, even if you misjudged the severity of the sanctions or how quickly they'd be imposed, knew something was coming. And, you know, getting inside Putin's head. I mean, I know everybody's writing about that. I don't know what his motives were, but, you know, clearly he knew they were coming. So I'm sure uh, they were long- honestly, I think they're probably planning for it for years. That would be the response. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 so I think I mean, it's it's clearly doing harm. And most of those oil sales, by the way, going to Europe, not not to the United States. Europe is really, you know, in the crosshairs, not the crosshairs, but they're they're at risk with regard to oil sales. You know, the United States is mostly self-sufficient in, in oil production. So um, so I suspect in the U.S., for sure, a lot of these uh, price hikes in gas are kind of gouging. I doubt they're based on market forces or anything like that. Didn't Biden also just release like 60 million barrels or something like that? From that? Yeah. And the Europeans are doing a similar thing. Yeah. So I think from the strategic reserve. Yeah. A lot of this is, is panic buying. It's, it's commodity speculation. It's like same with wheat, right? Now wheat's probably more legitimate because Ukraine does and and Russia both are a significant wheat supplier, probably combined. I forget what percentage of the global market. I I think like a third of the, of the global market of wheat comes from Russia. Yeah. It's a a huge number. And so I'd say that was, was a bigger and it, with regard to pricing is probably a bigger threat. You're going to see more inflation. And, you know, when inflation kind of begets itself, so you start to see, you know, it's basically just gouging. We're seeing that right now. You know, there were some supply chain issues, but uh, uh, everyone is using that as an excuse. Look at what Jeff Bezos is doing right now. Right? He's increased the cost of Prime by 20 bucks, which is $4 billion, you know, for all his customers. So, you know, I, yeah, you're going to hear a lot about how the war in Ukraine is causing inflation, and it will. And, uh, but it, that's also going to be a large component that's going to be price gouging. But yeah, sanctions, are, I mean, they're a hostile act, but they're not going to affect Putin and the, the oligarchs. I mean, they may lose a billion dollars, but, you know, there are, there are rumors all over the place that Putin has like a hundred billion dollars hidden in various accounts all over the place. And the U.S. is, you know, moving to freeze assets, but that's also difficult to get at. And, you know, uh, the way the international banking system works, you can always hide money. They're seizing yachts, which is a great idea. I just hope they don't take mine. You know, as long as they seize Russian oligarchs yachts, that's fine. But you leave my yacht alone. You know, but uh, anyway. hopefully, hopefully they won't mistake, you know, a Russian oligarch's yacht for yours. As it's, yeah, you know, yeah. docked <laughs> dock there in Italy. I mean, they all—it's about the same size. You know, I, I obviously know nothing of the world of yachts, but how does a yacht cost eight hundred million dollars? Like, I have no clue what's in a yacht, but I mean, that's like freaking nuclear subs. I mean, you know, like the Pentagon pays for, for its craft. So, um, but yeah, they're going to do all that kind of stuff. Uh, so the oligarchs will take a hit, but you know, when you have 40 or a hundred billion or whatever, I'm not sure losing the yacht is, is gonna, gonna break you. I mean, it's interesting, you know, I think the key issue here, cause you did see, um, shit, I forgot the name. Now the second biggest oil company in Russia has told Putin that he needs to negotiate. So that I think that's the interesting point because you know that's a meet, something you and I talk about all the time. It's kind of the ruling classes, and you know Russia has a ruling class. I mean, Putin by himself does not wield total power. Nobody has a hundred percent of power. Nobody is a hundred percent responsible for things that go wrong, unless you talk to my exes. But I mean, anyway, uh, it should so, be noted. It should also be just noted for um, folks is that, you know, when we're talking about war profiteering and when we're t- talking about people making money from this, 
we're talking about price gouging and things like that. The people who are going to stand the who stand the benefit are maybe probably at some level Russian oligarchs, but who knows? It's the American oligarch class, and that yeah. is like that. You know, they made trillions extra through the pandemic, and now as we're moving into you know this conflict, as this conflict in Europe is happening, you know, oil companies are getting richer. Shell has actually kind of gone back and said that it will actually buy Russian oil. Uh, and but they'll donate some of the money to you know Ukrainian refugees. Um, yeah. But but you know the Betzoses of the world and the Zuckerbergs and um, whoever else are they're going to come out trying to look patriotic, but they are also going to be making a lot of money from this conflict at some level. Yeah, I mean, I think and the American that... oligarchs, the American oligarch class. But everyone's saying that we should call them oligarchs more. But and I totally agree. Anyway, we've been doing we've been doing that forever. I've been calling them, we've been calling them all our for forever, like forever since. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think the sanctions, especially, I mean, as long as oil isn't sanctioned, then Russia's that, I mean, sanctions are not going to bring Russia down and they're not going to force Putin, you know, I think. To, to, I'm sure there's many days of the, of his invasion that were paid by the, the, the spike in the price of oil from the, the yeah, from yeah, the yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I'm not aware. I mean, I, I got to go and, I've, I've kind of been avoiding it because this is not a pleasant subject and the world is already in disarray. And so studying this, I mean, I'm not concerned about, you know, people who are concerned about World War III. It's clearly a reason to be concerned and it's a horrible situation. And right now, I think the issue is to try to figure out, you know, the problem with wars is they kind of create their own momentum. So now, you know, it's, it's March of 2022 and, and your options are, are way limited in ways that they would not have been well, let's say eight years ago, if, you know, Minsk too, one of, you know, the kind of part of Minsk too was kind of creating some kind of means of deciding what was going to happen in those two republics in the Donbass region. Part of Minsk too had to do with the eastward movement of NATO. Putin, you know, you can deny all you want or say he was faking it, but man, I, you know, in the last few weeks, I have been reading about this. I mean, Putin talked about NATO's expansion all the time. He brought it up explicitly all the time. And you had people from the U.S. ruling class, including Henry freaking Kissinger, who I hate invoking, you know, and George Kennan and people before that in the 90s, Robert McNamara, you know, uh, Matlock. I mean, we've talked about a lot of them in the previous three shows we've done on this, who were warning uh, how the eastward expansion of, of uh, NATO was provocative. And so that's that's all too it's too late to deal with that, right? I mean, and, and you know, the United States isn't going to suddenly say, okay, well, we will agree never to bring Ukraine into NATO. That ship sailed, right? So now you have fewer and fewer options. You impose these sanctions. You know, they're they're certainly hurting Russia. They're squeezing Russia, especially the banking system. Perhaps it'll cause the uh, Russian ruling class to schism and create internal opposition to Putin, there seems to be opposition in the streets to this war. And, you know, even if you shut off media nowadays, you know, there's always ways to get stuff to people. There's, you know, I mean, I see BBC starting shortwave radio transmission again, uh, and there's cell phones and there's, you know, a million things. I see, you see these images of Russian soldiers who are captured using cell phones from the, the Ukrainians to like write to their, you know, text to their mom saying I'm alive. Or, or FaceTime, FaceTime with their moms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, clearly the Russians are aware of what's going on, even if, even if, uh, um, you know, even if, if, if official media is shut down. I mean, there was some of that literature throughout the Cold War. They're going to know what's going on in Ukraine. It's not that hard to figure out. If a local kid gets killed, they'll know it. I mean, and I think the U.S. goal, you know, 
per Brzezinski's brag was to create kind of uh, an Afghanistan type situation. So this thing isn't going to end soon by any means, right? But at the same time, I don't see Ukraine falling and totally. I mean, that's a big country and it's going to have a resistance. You know, it's not a, it's a country which, you know, has a lot of people who don't like Russians. Uh, it has a significant right wing, which we're not allowed to talk about because then we'd be pro-Putin apologists, I guess. But um, it's, it's, this thing is unfortunately nowhere close, I think, to, to being over. And I don't think you have to be a Pentagon analyst or a CNN or MSNBC, uh, you know, personality to understand that. If you just study this stuff a little bit, know a little bit about it. And one thing I'd like to point out is, and this is a not subtle at all brag about you and I, but, you know, everybody's been talking about this. I've been, you know, catching podcasts and lefty. I'm just talking about the left media. I don't care about the right media. And everybody's an expert on this. And I've been reading stuff from people who I don't think ever knew who Ukraine, where Ukraine was, who are now writing with great, you know, great authority about this stuff. And this is something that we've been studying. I, I've known this about this stuff, you know, it's what I do. This is actually the one area where I have a, a little bit of knowledge. So yeah, this has been a long-term uh, process. This war is not, it's new. This phase of the war obviously is new. It's just a massive and really dangerous escalation, but um, you know, the war has been going on since really 2014. And the crisis has been going on since 1991. And the U.S., you know, in many ways helped create Putin as much as anybody did. They, they helped create these oligarchs. They helped break up the uh, old Soviet, uh, you know, state um, industries. The United States provided Yeltsin with billions of dollars of aid or else he probably wouldn't have even been president again. So uh, and the U.S. created the conditions for Putin and actually supported him. So. Um, you know, there's a lot of options now that are just no longer available because too much time has passed. Yeah. And, you know, for folks, for folks who like want to know more about that deep background, you just listen to this episode first, check out our, the first episode that we put out on the, the Ukraine Russia arc, which is called deep background on Ukraine and Russia. Um, very, very informative for folks about that history uh, starting in 1991 with the breakup of the Soviet Union and then the waves of privatization and political machinations of the U.S. and NATO to, you know, contain and keep Russia from, you know, being a, a, a serious foe like it was during the Cold War. And then the second one we did actually goes into even more detail about the breakup of the Soviet Union. And then the third one was a lot of fun, which is more just kind of a background around what the military industrial complex really is. And that's more kind of U.S. centric. And we'll just keep doing these, you know, it's like, you know, we're, this one is fairly brief, but just as things come up, you know, a lot of people are just doing kind of daily blow by blows and, you know, don't want to do that. But when Scott, you know, pointed out, showed me that poll that, you know, 70% of Americans, 74% of Americans want to establish a no-fly zone, you know, we thought, well, let's talk a little bit about that because that's a really bad idea. But like I said, fortunately, I don't think uh, that's anywhere near happening. Everybody realizes. And, you know, there's, there's kind of a, you know, an old phrase, graduated escalation. And, and you know, I mean, the, the war is clearly still moving. I, I'm not sure what to believe of battlefield accounts of, you know, I think Russia will, you know, has the ability to create an immense destruction and death in Ukraine. But in terms of taking over that whole country and establishing a puppet government, you know, maybe, but I don't think it's imminent. Uh, and, um, you know, I think, you know, our point all along has been that they need to negotiate somehow. The, and, the, and then, the, you know, the other thing that's going to like really slow it down and, and impact it, which we're seeing, is just the large amount of arms being shipped into Ukraine from Western countries. Like, 
really, really important thing to understand there. And even if Russia takes Kyiv and gets Zelensky, whatever, the U.S. is still going to is the U.S. and NATO and Western countries are still going to be supporting the military that remains, and then whatever insurgency might come after that. It's going to be just a long. We're going to we're looking at a long, bloody process going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ukraine is not going to be short of arms. In fact, remember a few days ago with that the image of that like forty mile Russian convoy, and I'm like, they're in a hot. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm actually technically I'm kind of a military historian, which is which is not not historian, not hysteria. <laughs> Maybe both. What uh. You know, I'm like when there's a 40 mile convoy on a highway, you know, with woods on either side, I'm like, you know, that's that's kind of easy. And, and it has it's been bogged down. You know, that doesn't take a lot. There's there's a lot of ways to, to stop that. And so clearly the the uh, Ukrainians are armed and they do have the ability. They're getting stinger missiles now. They're they'll they they will be they will have adequate weaponry. So, yeah, it's going to it's going to be a long bloody war. And, and Putin, I mean, at some point, you know, maybe somebody. In, in Putin's inner circle, we'll start to say, hey, look, we miscalculated. You know, the key point here is not to, to defend the Russians at all. It's to try to prevent more death among just basic young, not, I mean, everybody, young men and women in both Ukraine and then Russian soldiers, as well as the, the way that sanctions will, will harm basic, you know, the average Russian people. Um, and negotiation will be the way to do that. And, you know, you're not going to negotiate after what size and you've been two weeks, you know, you're not going to negotiate that soon. Apparently they're supposed to be talking, but I can't see anything really coming of that. I mean, Putin's kind of, uh, you know, in the U S one big issue that we talk about, especially with regard to like the anomalous I study is credibility, you know, and your credibility is your, is, is the way that your, your friends rely on you and your enemies fear you. And so credibility has to be earned in many ways by taking hits. There's a great memo by a guy who was assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs, John McNaughton, uh, in 1964, very early in the war. He said, this thing isn't going to turn out well, but we have to stay in. And we have to let our allies see that we got bloody and we took hits. We have to let our enemies know that they'll suffer if they stay in this war. And unfortunately, you know, uh, that actually, I think, is still very much true. And I suspect Putin is kind of looking at it the same way too. He can't get out now. Uh, you know, um, I don't know about what's inside his brain. Everybody's doing like, you know, everybody's Freud. Uh, so, um, but I, uh, I don't know what the motivation is. I mean, there's a long-term motivation, right? With regard to this fear of NATO and Western encirclement. Uh, but um, I, I don't know beyond that. Yeah. But I just, you know, let's hope that, uh, you know, I just hope the fewest amount of few, you know, fewest destruction is done, less destruction than fewest amount of people are killed. But yeah, they got to negotiate, but a no-fly zone would be utterly just catastrophic. It would draw the U.S. into the war, draw NATO into the war in a far more direct way. And I mean, be clear on this. It, it, no matter what Russia's military capability is, it is nothing close. The United States spends, I think, what has its the U.S. military budget is like six times that of Russia. And the U.S. is part of an alliance system with 30 other countries in Europe, NATO. Russia has nothing like that. Russia does not have that. China, uh, which is really, I think we needed to do a show on that because that's really interesting because the Chinese have, have just kind of stayed out. And I think people expected a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of folks expected China to support Russia. And I, why would they, you know, they can let the U.S. and 
Russia beat each other up and, you know, kind of, you know, I mean, one, I'd argue the main reason China's economic ascendancy in the last 25, 30 years is it hasn't had any wars, you know, and it does have a, a much bigger military, but even the Chinese military is nothing compared to the U.S. The United States has 800 bases all over the world. It spends officially 800 billion a year is the defense budget. So um, it's, it's the, the Russians are not a military threat to Western interest in that regard. And I think the big fear is obviously nuclear weapons. And, you know, normally under these circumstances, I say, oh, no one's going to do that, but you never know. So. Yep. Um, you have been listening to the Green and Red podcast. Uh, we're here for you folks. Um, we really like bringing you these backgrounds and these conversations about things that maybe aren't being discussed in other media sectors or outlets. And definitely. Um, we see ourselves very much as uh, not people who have just kind of come into this whole analysis on U.S.-Russian foreign policy in the last two weeks. Uh, and, and because we have a big Twitter account with influencers, which we don't, but you should follow us on Twitter. Uh, but this is like an important conversation and, and we're hoping people are getting a lot out of what we've been talking about with the Ukraine and, and the history and the, and the, and the other politics surrounding it the economics etc um and uh if you like what you hear and check us out on facebook instagram and twitter uh if you're watching this on youtube hit subscribe button hit that subscribe button and if you want to make a donation go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the support button or go to our patreon page and uh become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast and it's been great talking and we'll have more for you soon